Greetings, St. Croix Valley and points beyond. It's Saturday, April 9th, 2022, and River Radio is ready to rock. Coming to you from our studios in beautiful Midtown Marina on St. Croix, this is River Radio. I'm Jim Maher. And I'm Gail Knutson. Much thanks to Matt Quass, who reminds me that I'm supposed to start the show. He's our technical director. Elaine Larson, who does a great job uh, updating our webpage, the show page, as well as the uh, website for the Marine Community Library. And Laura Lee DiLorenzo, who handles publicity. The program's produced by Jim and Gail and presented by the Marine Community Library. The library is located on the traditional, ancestral, and contemporary homelands of Dakota and Anishinaabe peoples. On today's show, we have Professor Nick Hayes, Chair in Critical Thinking at St. John's University, to provide his perspective on the war between Russia and Ukraine. And Heidi Barr of Lindstrom and Rosie Peters of Marine on St. Croix, two poets of place for the Big Read being sponsored by ArtReach St. Croix. Um, Our show, of course, is uh, done live here on Saturday morning, so people can listen on our Zoom link or on Facebook Live on the Marine Fan Supporter and Booster page. Uh, Otherwise, everything's available on our podcast feed. This is program number 14 of the season. Well, we want to mark the fact, by the way, that we just passed our second anniversary. Our first River Radio aired on March 28, 2020. So happy anniversary, Gail. Happy anniversary, Jim. And guess who was on our first show? Gordon and Cheryl Arcand from the General Store, Ross Levin, Mr. Financial, Pastor Joel Martin from Christ Lutheran, Kathy Adams from Valley Bookseller, and Dorothy Dietz, who talked to us about health and wellness. Well, a memorable show, to be sure. It was. Uh, Uh, A couple of news items I wanted to mention. One is there's been a lot of talk locally about the tax assessments for homeowners. Uh, Many people got their assessments for uh, 2023 and saw that their home values were being raised by 20 to 30 percent or more uh, by the assessors. But uh, a point to be made, and there's been a lot of discussion about this in some of the local meetings, uh, town boards, city city councils, that taxes won't be going up 20 to 30%. Uh, the, uh, that's just the assessments, but everybody's home assessments went up that much. So it's going to be the same pool of money, more or less, being split among all of those households. Uh, our uh, county commissioner in this area, Fran Mirren, explained the other night that residential values did go up more than the values for commercial, industrial, and agricultural properties. So residential may be making up a bit more of the pie in terms of property taxes. Uh, hey, Gail, we had we forgot to mention this last time, and I wanted to. Um, we talked a lot about Jesse Diggins, of course, on this program because mm-hmm. she's a local uh, gold and silver and bronze medalist from the Olympics. But we had another one in Sydney Peterson, a Stillwater grad, uh, grad who uh, was in the Paralympics. Yeah, and won three medals in Nordic ski events, um, a gold in the four by, do they call it 2.5 kilometer or two and a half kilometers? So four by two and a half kilometer mixed relay and a silver in the 15 kilometer classic and bronze in the freestyle sprint. Um, yeah, and this was Sydney's first Paralympics. Yeah, and she was actually a, a kind of a late entrant to the team. She's only 20 years old, so I bet we'll be hearing more out of her, but very nice job. Also, somebody from our area, Max Nelson of Grant Township, was also on the team 
in uh, cross-country skiing. Hey, we've got uh, some news about our local establishment, Gail. Yes, we do. The Brookside has been sold. So um, they're going to remain open right now um, through the 16th. That'll be their last day. Then they're just going to close real quick, kind of do a little revamping and whatever, a little transitional period in there. And then they'll reopen again later in April. But stay tuned. We'll know more on our next River Radio Show, and I'm sure you'll hear it on the streets of Marine. And also, I just wanted to mark uh, the passing of uh, Washington County Attorney Pete Orput. I think that kind of was surprising news to most of us. Uh, he died of cancer early this week, I believe age 66. He had announced back in January that he wasn't going to be seeking re-election. And, uh, but a, a sad passing, obviously, um, and sorry to hear about it and best to his family. Uh, we're going to get going with Nick Hayes here, but Gail, let's uh, start with our first poll question. All right, so first poll question today is, what is your expectation for the outcome of the Russia-Ukraine war? And we got four choices here. Russia will ultimately take over Ukraine. Ukraine will ultimately prevail over Russia. Ukraine will cede some of its territory to Russia but maintain its independence. Or the war will extend beyond Ukraine's borders. Well, we are honored to have with us this morning Professor Nick Hayes. He holds the University Chair in Critical Thinking at St. John's University, and I know you've heard him many times on NPR, on National Public Radio. He was on NewsHour with Jim Lehrer and in many other venues. He spent many years in the former Soviet Union and is very familiar with the territory where the conflict is raging today. I, uh, maybe I would go so far as to refer to him as a Kremlinologist. I'm not sure if Professor Hayes would agree with that. But he truly oh. understands the lay of the land in Russia I, I, and I, I, Eastern Europe. What's I mean, that? May, may I jump in a moment? The problem with your term Kremlinologist, I struggled with this for years. As you become more tired, perhaps, or repetitive, it it's, goes from the name of the center in Moscow it, to kind of a more general term of criminology, something of that sort, which is what uh -huh. you want to avoid. <laughs> okay. Yeah, good point. Well, great to have you on the program, Professor Hayes. Yes, and it's wonderful to be here. Well, I want to start out with, I'm just curious, given all of your history and background and, and even personal time spent over there, did you expect we would be in this circumstance that we are today with this invasion and, and of course, uh, uh, the, the terrible damage that's resulted from it? I have to tell you the truth, I expected pretty much the opposite. Had you called me, whatever, several weeks before the actual invasion, I would have told you, don't worry, they are not going to cross that line. This is a very elaborate bluff. Uh, things will recede back to normal. Ultimately, Putin does not want to destroy this part of the world. He wants to be the statesman that leads it into the next century and so on and so forth. In other words, I would have been flat wrong. And I think it is also true of most of my colleagues who study the former Soviet Union or study Russian affairs, we all felt pretty much the same, that Putin had limited objectives, that he by and large was accomplishing them, however we might disagree with him, and that an absolute bloodbath would not occur. And in this, I'm afraid we were tragically wrong. So uh, obviously some of the uh, military analysts at the start of the war were thinking Russia would probably succeed fairly quickly, at least in taking right. over a bigger part of the country and overthrowing the government. And that hasn't happened. Do you think it's altered at all? Uh, and I don't know why I should ask you if you know how to read Vladimir Putin's mind, but do you think his state of mind has changed since the start of the war? Well, I deeply fear for his mental health 
and its possible implications for all of us. If I may say in general, when you look at it in retrospects, retrospect, excuse me, you see a resentful Putin, a Putin that feels he's been humiliated. You see a Putin that has deep personal grudges against many of the international players behind this story. Um, I can only come back and repeat the same thing. I was absolutely shocked by the turn of events to the invasion and completely shocked as he consists to move into more and more grotesque brutality. Yeah, it's, it does seem surprising, I think, to all of us. Um, you have to ask the question, what does he want? And then when one, one shudders, when one looks at the implications of what he's doing, it's what it tells what he wants. Well, tell us more about that. Well, in this sense, above all else, uh, I, what he wants to do is generate civil war. He does not want a stable outcome. He believes, apparently, that out of the civil war will come the political climate that will be conducive towards his goals. Uh, I can only say two things. Number one, I believe the man has serious mental problems. Number two, he has almost adolescent dreams of being the great savior of the Slavs of the East, the great savior that rebuilds the Russian empire and so on and so forth. He is, in other words, utterly delusional. And when you say civil war, are you talking about in Ukraine specifically, or would that extend beyond the borders to, to other it would, parts it would of inevitably, It would inevitably extend to other nations that were carved out of the former Soviet Union. You cannot stand aside when this uh, type of tragedy unfolds. Uh, let's talk about the war crimes aspect of this. That's come up repeatedly in the last two, three weeks of the war. Um, and and I would say pretty obvious that this has occurred. Is anything going to happen in terms of, uh, you know, bringing any kind of action in regards to war crimes that would affect Vladimir Putin or Russia in general? Well, there certainly will be action and uh, gestures towards prosecution in terms of the war, war crimes tribunal. I think the problem we have is, number one, how difficult it is from the viewpoint of law to prosecute such cases. And secondly, a simple reality, the United States is not a member of the International War Crimes Tribunal. So that gives Putin more latitude to act with impunity in terms of the conflict. And why is the U.S. not part of that? It's a complicated question. Um, I, and I would suggest um, you look at you throw the question to, let us say, the conservative Republican leadership of Congress today, and you get a better sense. Okay. The reality is there are strong political forces in the United States that feel, perhaps in the wake of the Vietnam Wars, that the United States would be just drawn into more and more conflicts and become in a more and more precarious position. And so therefore the reaction has been, rather than exercise the actual legal leadership in terms of conflict resolution, to aggravate the problem by not participating. I want to talk more about what you raised before about the, you, you fear there's an inevitable spread of this war. I, how do you think that proceeds from here, given the fact that particularly that Russia has not had tremendous success, at least the kind of success we all thought they maybe were expecting to have uh, to this point? Well, this is a kind of a classic historic case of where the the, the larger state party, in this case, the, the, the Russians, are incapable of enforcing a victory on the, the smaller minority party, in this case, the Uk Ukrainians. 
this is happening. You could say this is the story of Vietnam in part. If you look back on the history of combat in the Vietnam War, you have much of the same with the United States with numerical superiority, but nevertheless, in terms of the tactics of an insurrection or guerrilla campaign, highly vulnerable. And that is exactly where the current battle situation strikes me as being today. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so there seems to be uh, one thing that's come out of this is there's a hardening of the Cold War attitudes in both Russia and the West. Do you think we're back into a new Cold War period? Well, uh, no, I would say we're we're, we've witnessed now the transition from the end of the Cold War period to what we're precisely witnessing now is the, the end of the post-Cold War period, meaning the various international systems, agreements, and norms that had been established in the 1990s by that initial leadership into more recent times created a system, let us say, of stability in the region, but it also created a system that in the eyes of some, particularly Vladimir Putin, was not fair. It discriminated against his ambitions and was treated as a foe that could be humiliated with impunity. Uh, so how would you judge the strength of Russia today, um, particularly given the results we've seen so far in this war? A, a lot of belief that they had a very strong military. I mean, certainly it is strong in many ways, but but it wasn't an overwhelming force just yet. Uh, any well, any sense of that? Well, the real question is, yes, it appeared to be strong. It appeared to have all of the resources, but uh, the proof is in the pudding. It proved to be highly ineffective in terms of actual combat. And... Uh, this does not bode well for the future of, of the Russian campaign in the sense that it simply cannot prevail or decisively defeat an opponent, and the opponent still remains quite able to inflict damage on the Russians. I'm speaking to Professor Nick Hayes of St. John's University. Uh, Professor Hayes, how much time did you spend over there? It, um, well, I, I'm sure you've been there many times, but I know you lived over there for a while. This gives me the opportunity for a brief joke, perhaps to relax the conversation for a minute. <laughs> okay. Uh, in my trips over, um, one of the things that I was tracking and uh, I wrote about at the time, I was interested in the Russian rock and roll scene and the underground counterculture scene. And that, that fit into many, many of the trips I took there. And I always, when asked a question such as you just posed, I go back to tell a story uh, the first time I met Boris Grubenshikov in St. Petersburg, I met a, a man who might be called the Bob Dylan of Russia. Boris mm -hmm. Grubenshikov was, uh, still is a very popular performer in Russia. And a Russian friend had arranged for me to meet him and interview him. Uh, and I was quite excited by this opportunity. And uh, it was a quite cordial interview. But I come back to uh, the point that inspires this response. We came into the table, sat down. Grubenshikov looked at me, and he, he speaks English fluently, but in a faint British accent. And he looked at me and he said, Nicholas, um, can I ask you how many times you have been to my country, the Soviet, the, the Soviet Union, as it was the Soviet Union at the time? Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I'm asked that question often, and I really cannot tell you. I lost track about 30 or 40 times. I'm not really certain. And Grubenshikov said, oh, how unfortunate. My situation is more unfortunate. I've been here for, I've been here once, but it lasted for 35 years. <laughs> right. And so my answer is I, I have a hard time calculating how many times I've been here. 
extended but, stays, it's much more easy for me to calculate. Right. Uh, so a couple of questions going back to the situation with the war here. And uh, there's a lot of talk. Of course, we know that uh, President Zelensky in the Ukraine has been more or less begging for more Western involvement. And I'm sure he would love to see NATO actually step into the fight here. What would happen if that happened? And, and is that even a, a possibility, do you think? If NATO steps in, it would be perhaps the most incendiary act one could imagine in terms of antagonizing overall Russian public opinion. And this forces me maybe to step back to put the whole controversy in a larger perspective. Number one, if you'll forgive me, the single biggest mistake of American foreign policy in the post-Cold War era was the expansion of NATO eastward into the territories that were part of the former Soviet Union. Hmm. I can assure you, there is no issue that I have known among Russians, most of whom are of moderate to liberal persuasion, that is opposed and Russians cannot see the rationale for why we did this at a time when we were not at war with uh, Russia, at a time when we were cooperating internationally. Why did we ex choose to expand NATO eastward into former Russian territories? They believe that could not have been done without any other kind of motive by the United, that we had some kind of ulterior motive in this and ultimately it was a threat towards Russia itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. So uh, so obviously just it, it, it probably also explains why President Biden's been very firm in saying we are not going in, to participate in a no-fly zone. We're not going to send troops in. He seems to be trying to make that very clear. Well, the average Russian, in addition to what I said about NATO, believes that ultimately America's ambition appears to be the destruction of the economy and infrastructure of Russia itself. All of these act, Biden's gestures and his statements, which I support in this context, all are designed to dissuade the um, Russians that that is not our intent. Uh, and no matter how much we persist in trying to convey that, we simply cannot get it across because there's such a deep suspicion of the history of U.S. intervention in all parts of the world that Russians refuse to take us seriously in our claims. So that was interesting what you said about their their perception of the U.S. and the West seeking to take down the country and the economy. And now we have all of the economic sanctions, which will definitely create hardships over there. So how does that play into the whole thing? Well, it certainly, our intention by this is to galvanize support among, let us say, the Russian middle class, people of influence, that we assumed would see that this is a tactic designed to give them leverage in terms of the political future of Russia. I'm afraid it has exactly the opposite effects. It alienates uh, the middle class of Russia. It alienates those who might have historically been on our side. It alienates those in general who feel this has been a catastrophic mistake. And I've seen some stories. Uh, there aren't many Western media outlets in Russia right now, but BBC no, has still had reporters in there. And I've seen stories on the BBC news where they're talking to some, you know, man on the street type interviews in Russia. And of course, they're very anti-West and very much pro this war is, you know, is justified. Uh, is that a, do you think that's, that is a, the broad perception there and B, uh, it, it seems like we're really crossing paths here in terms of seeing the world in two different ways. I think we are seeing the bipolar, you know, 
breakup of what had been a, a consensus, a sense of unity. And now you see, and I think in this sense, Putin is very much behind driving to create a divide between the two main clusters of opinion and above all else to galvanize radical support among the Russian population itself in the sense that there may be a point of conflict in the near future. Hmm. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't sound encouraging, that's for sure. Uh, do you think this, uh, what appeared at least at the outset to be a strengthened NATO coalition can hold together in, in, in its uh, stance? In this case, I think it probably will hold together just because it is in all parties' best interest to do so. The NATO allies themselves do, do not any more than the Americans want to get involved in a conflict that draws them deeply in to the conflict with the Russians. Can you talk about China's role in this whole thing? They, I, I think we were hopeful that maybe China would be a little bit more on the side of trying to encourage Russia to pull back on this, but they don't seem to be doing that. Well, we seem to have had a naive policy that we were in a jam and if we just talked to the Chinese, they would come along and help us because they could see that this was in their interest of stability as well. I think if I looked at it in the larger perspective, we're going to see two things. In the short term, we're going to see that the Chinese will intervene in some capacity, lend at least some diplomatic support to the goals of the U.S. in trying to stabilize this situation. I think long term, this is the signal of an entirely new era of the models of international politics, especially as the United States is concerned. Simply put, I think we'll go from a bipolar international political world of the United States and the West to a tripolar political world in which China now becomes one of the three great powers that holds the balance of influence in that part of the world. Hmm. Also, I was curious what you make of uh, situations, for instance, in Hungary, where uh, Viktor Orban uh, won a pretty convincing victory, apparently, on last Sunday, and then in addition seemed to be expressing his support for Vladimir Putin. He does support Putin. And I'm sorry, sorry to jump in and interrupt. No, you. no, that's okay. And, and, but it was interesting because it seemed like early on he was showing some sympathy and they, they brought in refugees and so forth in Hungary, and yet, yet he's on Putin's, in Putin's camp. But, but he had no idea that how far Putin was going to go on this issue. Hmm. Okay, so, but Putin definitely has, in places like that, he's got allies and he's not Absolutely. really isolated. I fear of what, the, like Otto Urban's position today, what kind of effect it has on Putin. I fear he sees too much examples of powers that came in, or states that in which the government came into power due, due to a coup. Urban would be a classic case, and several others in short, Putin saw evidence that the politics of a coup was becoming entirely acceptable and therefore quite highly likely to gamble that he could pull it off too. Mm. Well, I wanted to ask you uh, one more thing real quick. I've noticed uh, on the website that uh, you, you have a book looking for Leningrad, My Russian Life. Now, is this book that's actually available or is this something you're it's working not on? Out yet. I'm sorry, okay. I'm hopelessly behind on <laughs> okay. publication date. Uh, I, if I may tell you quite candidly, my colleagues at Minnesota Public Radio told me about uh, about a year ago that they've already announced on the air the publication of my book, which it wasn't out yet at the time. Ah. So, I'm, so anyway, we are hastily pushing to see that that project is done. We estimate within about four months I should have it out and available at a bookstore near you. 
And can you just give us a little preview of what, what, what it's about? Well, it's really uh, twofold. It, it's basically a memoir of my life in Russia, my times in Russia from the late 1970s uh, to, to the end of the Soviet Union. It tells the story through a series of vignettes of characters I knew and worked with over the long time that I had worked in Russia and what became of them, particularly with the end of communism and the end and the coming of the post-Cold War world, what has happened to them. And in general, I'm trying to explain at the end why there is a certain Soviet nostalgia, why for so many, the Soviet period of history is still regarded as a model and still regarded as a source for admiration. So uh, in summary, Professor Hayes, uh, what do you think is are the most likely scenarios from here? What are things we should be watching and, and where do you think this is headed at this point? At this point, we should be watching for some common sense to descend upon the uh, diplomatic community, particularly of Europe. We will should see some ability by which the powers of Europe and the United States are able to negotiate perhaps an internationally supervised referendum on certain territories that uh, the Russians have occupied. Crimea would be the classic case, Sevastopol would be another. Uh, perhaps to a lesser degree, the Donbas to the east where there has been intense fighting lately. The truth is the borders of the, of the system are inadequate. They are in, they, they create more uh, conflicts than they solve and some form of international intervention to demonstrate that at least in some territories like that we could be willing to yield on the, I would pick the Crimea as the place to make a case. It is a place that is extremely dear to the hearts of Russians. It is a place that after all was the, the basic home of Chekhov. It is central to the Russian memory of its history and we should be able to reach at least a partial compromise in some kind of a referendum, let us say in the Crimea to demonstrate our good faith to what we promised, which was diplomatic leadership, not further exploitation in the area. Well, very good, Professor Hayes. I wanna thank you thank so you. much for sharing your knowledge with us this morning. Thank you, it's been a real pleasure. Professor Nick Hayes, a true expert on all things Russia and the former Soviet Union and holds the University Chair in Critical Thinking at St. John's University. Okay, we're gonna take a look at that poll question that we had, see what the results were. The question was, what is your expectation for the outcome of the Russian-Ukraine war? And uh, most of us, 68% of us said, Ukraine will cede some of its territory to Russia, but maintain its independence. Uh, second went to 23% of us said, the war will extend beyond Ukraine's borders. 9% Ukraine will ultimately prevail over Russia. Um, zero said Russia will ultimately take over Ukraine. All right. Well, again, thanks much to Professor Hayes. Uh, very insightful information and, and uh, sobering as well, unfortunately, but, but still good to hear. Gail's getting ready to have a discussion with two local poets, Heidi Barr and Rosie Peters. But before that, she has an update on local news. The Maytown board gave a thumbs up, um, or I'm sorry, they gave a thumbs down 
let's get that right, to the proposed clearing at Arcola Tree Farm housing development, a plan to build an open space subdivision with 32 homes near the intersection of Highway 95 and Square Lake Trail, was rejected by the board following a similar recommendation from the May Township Planning Commission. The plan required that a number of variances be granted to obtain approval. Concerns were expressed that the development, as presented, did not meet the goals of the township's comprehensive plan, and based on that view, the township board unanimously rejected the concept, concept plan. An historic signing uh, ceremony formalizing the sister city relationship between Scandia and Melarud, Sweden, will take place Wednesday, April 20th, 11 a.m. at Scandia Community Center. It marks the first time Scandia has been a sister city. Scandia chose Melarud because many of Scandia's founding families came from the Melarud area in Sweden with names like Abrahamson, Dahlin, Edstrom, Kuno, and Anderson. At the same time, Melarud officials will be signing with their 30 members City Council at 6 p.m. Swedish time. It will be broadcast simultaneously in each respective location. Local artist Joanna Welsh will gift Melarud with custom-designed sister Tom Tees to be exhibited at the Melarud Tom Tee Museum. Tom Tees are mythological creatures from Nordic folklore that look like gnomes. Following the ceremony, a fika will be held, which is a Swedish tradition where coffee, tea, Swedish cakes and cookies, and other light snacks are served. The public is welcome to join the festivities. River Radio plans to be on hand for this historic event. Scandia City Council passed a moratorium on solar farms for up to one year. The city will conduct a study to make sure the ordinance adequately addresses the health, safety, and general welfare of the community. The Scandia Board of Appeal and Equalization is scheduled for April 18th, 5 p.m. at the Scandia Community Center. This is an opportunity for residents to raise concerns they may have about their property valuation or classification for the current year. Spring burning restrictions are in effect in Scandia starting Monday, April 11th. Burning permits will not be issued until further notice, but small recreational three by three foot fires are allowed. Going on right now until 11 this morning, the Scandia Marine Lions are hosting a breakfast with the Easter Bunny at the Scandia Community Center. That's right, you heard it right here on River Radio. The Easter Bunny is currently in Scandia. Easter is Sunday, April 17th. Elam Lutheran Church in Scandia will hold its Easter services at 8 a.m. and 9.30 a.m. The 9.30 service will be live streamed at elamscandia.org. Christ Lutheran Church in Marine will have an indoor Easter service at 8.15 on Easter Day and hopes to hold its 10 a.m. service outside, weather permitting. But regardless of weather, there will be an Easter egg hunt open to all children 12 and under following the 10 a.m. service. Masks are now encouraged but not required. Marine's second annual volunteer fair will be held on Monday, April 11th from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Village Hall. This collaborative event will provide an opportunity for residents in the area to connect with local nonprofit organizations. Everyone is welcome to come and enjoy free ice cream while learning about volunteer opportunities in the Marine area. All Marine residents received their quarterly newsletter via U.S. mail recently, but those who have not received it can follow the goings-on in the village by downloading the newsletter from the city's website. The link is on our show page. All are welcome to play Ultimate Frisbee every Sunday beginning at 11 a.m. at the Marine Village School Playground. This fun event is for any age and any skill level. 
And it's time once again to renew your dog license. Stop by Marine City Hall with your dog's rabies cert or certificate and $2 to renew. That's right, just two bucks. Jim? Wow, what a deal. It, it is, is, it's, it's the, the best deal. deal in town. It is, and I bet it makes you just want to get a dog once again. It does. I really would like one. I know, I know. Well, uh, a couple things I want to mention is that uh, we've got the uh, the big read program that's coming up. Artreach St. Croix is coordinating this effort in our area. Of course, we'll be talking about that in just a minute with our next guest. Uh, this year's focus is on Native American arts and literature. The featured book is a book of poetry by Joy Harjo called An American Sunrise. She's the Poet Laureate of the U.S., and she'll be a featured speaker at a virtual event put on by Artreach which is coming up on April 18th, so that's a week from Monday. Here in Marine, however, we're participating as well. Our library will be hosting a presentation by Dr. Brenda Child of the University of Minnesota called Jingle Dress, a pandemic-inspired healing tradition that will be held live and in person at the Marine Village Hall on Thursday, April 21st at 7 p.m., and we're really excited to be part of that. The entire schedule for the Big Read can be found on a link on our website. And also for the library, I want to mention that our children's and family programs are up and running again. That includes Family Fun Night. The next one is Friday, April 22nd in the Village Hall. And hey, it's bingo night. That's from 5.30 to 7. But they do ask for RSVPs because they're going to kind of limit the number of people involved there. Also for the little ones, we've got story time every Thursday morning from 10.30 to 11 a.m. upstairs in the Village Hall. And Gail, let's see, I've got to get up our next poll question. And we wanted to ask people, Gail had mentioned the volunteer fair coming up in Marine on Monday. We wanted to see, um, well, here it comes, i got to hit the launch button. How much time do you volunteer in an average month? Is it up to 10 hours a month, 10 to 20 hours, 20 to 40, 40 or more? Or you don't spend any time volunteering? So please go ahead and answer that question, and Gail, take it away. Well, as part of the Big Read program Jim just mentioned, Artreach St. Croix announced five St. Croix Valley poets, uh, or we have poets as advocates and ambassadors for poetry and creativity in the lower St. Croix Valley. They're taking part in a Poets of Place program, similar to a Poet Laureate program, and are chosen to represent the rich and diverse cultures of poetry in the region. We're pleased to have two of these poets with us today. Heidi Barr of Lindstrom seeks to pursue the simple life. She she holds a master's degree in faith and health ministries, is the managing editor of Wayfarer magazine, and is the author of several nonfiction books. Her next poetry collection coming out soon is titled Slouching Towards Radiance. Heidi, welcome to the show today. Also with us today is Rosie Peters of Marine. Along with being a poet, she's an author, public speaker, and activist. She is of Yankton, Crow Creek and Oogla Lala descent. Rosie has had her poetry published in the Yellow Medicine Review and was recently awarded the Minnesota State Arts Board Artist Initiative Grant. This will allow her to professionally record an album of her spoken word and performance poetry and to complete her memoir, The Spider in the Rose. Rosie, welcome to you. Hi, Gail. Well, it's good to have you both on here. Heidi, I'll start with you. Can you tell us a little more about the Poets of Place program? Do we have Heidi with us here? Or did we lose her? Let's see. 
Heidi, we can't hear you. So I'm going to, I'll ask Rosie that question. Rosie, can you tell us a little bit about the Poets of Place program? Um, well, there are five of us um, that are ambassadors of poetry in the River Valley. And um, we're going to be doing a chat book launch and reading on April 27th up in St. Croix Falls at the scenic, uh, by, I, what is that called? I don't oh. get St. Croix Falls very often. Uh, the scenic river. Oh, is it this, is it, it's not Osceola's, uh, uh, wait, 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 no. What am I thinking of? Oh, I think it's the national park office, right? Is that it? Yes. Oh, is that, yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. Sorry, I, I I don't have the pamphlet in front of me, and and well, this month being Poetry Month, you know, oh, I am. It, it is it is a busy busy month as a poet. <laughs> I'll bet, I'll bet. Say, Heidi, are you with us there? I see you, you got on again. We are not hearing you, so I will just continue to to move on with Rosie. Heidi, break in any time when you um can get that audio to work. So, Rosie, what's it mean to be chosen for the program? That must be pretty cool. Uh, it was amazing. And, you know, I, I submitted some work samples. Um, it w there was a process. It's an honor, an honor, a huge honor and very humbling to, to be selected as a poet of place for the river Valley, because up until now, most of the, the work that I've done, um, has been in the cities and mm -hmm. I've always wanted to do something closer to home. Um, eventually, I want to get uh, get my schedule to a place where I can uh, start teaching uh, poet workshops here at the um, folk school. I've been I've been talking to Nance about that. Oh, good. Yes. A while now, um, but yeah, I didn't I didn't even know that I, I was by some locals, they, they came to the, the Brookside and they were, you know, I was encouraged to apply for this op position and opportunity. Well, let's go back a ways. How did you get started as a poet? I've always been a storyteller and I've always had a love of poetry. I think uh, it goes back to Maya Angelou, she would be my, mm -hmm. my my word mother. Just because as a kid, I was not exposed in the public school system to um, Native, the voices of Native authors. That, you know, it mm -hmm. just wasn't there. And um, it wasn't something offered. It, it wasn't until I came into adulthood, until after my first visit to AWP, actually that i realized oh my gosh there's there's people out here in the world that look like me that are writing books you know mm -hmm. and, uh, and then i started reading native literature and and focusing on that but prior to that it was the voices of uh you know it was black voices that i connected to uh maya angelo tony morrison um uh paul lawrence dunbar who was the uh the the first um african-american man to be a the uh a poet laureate um mm. well he, did you did you write as a child 
at all? I or Okay. I did. I wrote as a child, and then there were 17, roughly, not 17, about 13 years, 14 years that I didn't write at all just because I was uh, living a very, very uh, hard life and uninspired life. And then it wasn't until I came home, you know, to Minnesota back in 2011. And then I, I went back to college and I started doing the things that I wanted to do with my life that I made my way. It was a mutual thing. Poetry found me and I found it. Well, that hard and under, uninspired life that you talked about, how much has that influenced you in your writing now? Um, oh, it's everything. Hmm. Uh, you know, actually, one of my mentors, uh, Nicole Helgett, because I was in this um, year-long book writing program at The Loft, Mm -hmm. literary center which i have to say i mean coming here being here in the twin cities we are a mecca for uh the literary arts and just 45 minutes away it's just just everywhere you know and so it's 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 a huge blessing that that um that we have all the things that we have available to us um but anyway nicole helgett she's like you know rosie you have all the things, all the things to, to, to write about. You know, some people, when they're writing, you know, it's like you have this one thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she goes, you have no shortage of material. Oh, that's, that must have been good to hear. That- yes. And the reason that came up, though, is because while I'm working on this memoir, I have, there's days, there's weeks sometimes where I'll be writing and then I realized this does not belong in this book. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Hey, I'm gonna, Rosie, I'm going to give Heidi a try here. Heidi, are you with us? Again, uh, that, how about now? Oh, there you oh. are. Now oh, I hear okay. you. Hey, <laughs> glad to have oh. you with us. Hey, um, we'll talk to you a little bit here about what, what does it mean for you to be chosen for this program? Um, it was a really, it was, it felt like an honor to be chosen to be a representative of, of creativity and just be able to talk to people about writing and poetry and um, just kind of spreading my love of the, the art and helping others embrace it for themselves as well and however it works for them. So uh, did you start as a child as well? Have you, I mean, can you just look back and see that, oh my gosh, I've been doing this forever. I can't even tell when I started. Um, it's a little bit of a combination. When I was really young, I wrote poems and I actually found an old tiny little book of poetry that I'd made when I was, you know, seven or something, which is funny to, to find. Um, and then I, I got away from writing, I think, you know, later high school, college, um, I focused more on the health related side of what I do. And then I picked up creative writing again, or well, maybe 12 years or, or so ago. And I have continued on since then. So what's your inspiration, Heidi? Most of my inspiration comes from nature, I would say. I think if we're talking about poets who inspire you, I'd say Mary Oliver and Wendell Berry have been some of my biggest inspirations. Um, My dad was a big Wendell Berry fan, and we had all of his books in our house. Um, So the combination of farming and being outside in nature and sustainability, those things are really what I draw a lot from. All right, I got it. This is a question for both of you. Um, I'll start with Heidi, though. Do you, tell us a little bit about your process. Do you set a certain amount of time aside a day to write, or you, do you just write when you're inspired? 
I've never been a sit down and write at a certain time of day person. <laughs> I've always thought maybe I should be that, but no, I just write when I feel like it. I kind of sprinkle it in throughout my day. Um, you know, I write a little bit here, a little bit there. And then if I have a big project going, I'll, I'll carve out time to, to edit and make sure I'm doing what I want to do. But I sure. tend to just write all the time. How about you, Rosie? Do you set aside a certain amount of time or do you just write when you're inspired? Um, well, that has that has changed and evolved over time. I used to write when I was inspired and I would pull over. It didn't matter if I was driving. If it, if it came, I would pull over on the side of the road and uh, sit there and write, you know, on my phone or on a napkin, whatever, what is, was available. But I think um, what I've learned to be a successful writer, you have to treat it like a job. And so now I'm, I'm, at the point where I'm treating writing like a job. Hmm. Okay. I sleep with a notepad because I three in the morning things come to me. So I know I know what that's like when you say Rosie pulling over on the side of the road. All of a sudden you gotta write it down. So, so do you either of you show your work in progress to anyone? Do you work with somebody? Do you work with a group writing group? Um, Rosie, I'll start with you on that question. I'm in a, a native writers group with a, a group of women we were just recently published in an anthology together uh uh rising native women's voices but um and that is uh facilitated by diane wilson which oh, sure down the road you know she's been my men one of my mentors ah, for about yeah. two years now mm -hmm. um, that i've been in this uh cohort and Yes, I, I, I share writing uh, with them and we workshop, but I, outside of that, I, I what I'm currently working on, I, I you know, other than pieces that are, are I'm struggling with, I try to keep to myself until I'm getting, I'm about to uh, submit to a developmental editor, Monday actually. Oh, wow, okay. And so that when you submit to a developmental editor, is that somebody who's now going to look at your work and, and go over everything with you? And then you're going to go back and rewrite a little? Yeah, rewrite a lot. Rewrite and, a little or a lot. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. So I have a full manuscript deadline to a developmental editor, um, Susan Power, who teaches an MFA program at the University of Minnesota. She's a, a Dakota author. Um, so she will be... Uh, looking at my manuscript i'll develop uh you know take those edits and develop over the summer and then i received a, a mrat grant from the metropolitan regional arts council to that pays for professional line editing mm -hmm. and so in my line editor i know i i want to use nicole helgett um she'll do that little fine tuning help me with that you know right well that's yeah um, Heidi, how about you? Do you show your work in progress to anyone or do you work with anyone? I have a few writer friends who I'll show real early stuff to sometimes just to get some um, initial feedback. Uh, and then I've, I've published with two different presses and I have pretty good relationships with some editors there at this point. So we, so they give me some great feedback and I can really relate to what Rosie will be jumping into soon. I just finished a really 
massive developmental editing <laughs> project wow. for my next book that's coming out next year. So it's quite a quite a lot of work, but it's uh, certainly uh, a powerful experience to work with somebody. In pretty pretty rewarding too, I'm sure to yeah, see it in absolutely. print. I'm speaking with local poets Heidi Barr of Lindstrom and Rosie Peters of Marine on St. Croix. All right, Heidi, have you ever had your work rejected? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lots <laughs> I <knew>. of times. <laughs> I know that answer, but go yeah. ahead. Um, yeah, um, you know, it's just part of being a writer. You know, you put yourself out there and you get a lot of no's, but it only takes one yes for the project that you want to work on. So it's just a matter of continuing to work and offering it to the world. And who needs it will pick it up. And you just try again. Wow, uh, that's a, a great, great attitude to have because rejection can be pretty tough. I'm coming from a filmmaker point of view, but how about you, Rosie? Have you had your work rejected? Um, yes, I have. It was, it was um, early on. Well, what was funny is I had submitted to it was for extra credit in class in a in a creative writing class with Beth Mayer, she encouraged us to submit to some literary journals. And um, and just the act of submitting, we earned extra credit. Well, I submitted and to like five different journals. Yeah, four of them rejected me, but one published me. Hmm. And it was on, you know, and it was kind of like the first time I'd ever done that. And I was like, oh my gosh. The, the 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 one that published me that felt so great i didn't even care about the rejections right i mean yeah that it's it, like heidi says it just takes one that's what a great feeling so yeah so um you know rosie you mentioned some well i'll just ask you two who are your favorite poets dead or alive rosie why don't we start with you well uh <laughs> I have to give her a big shout out because she's our current poet laureate of the United States. She's a, a friend. Actually, she used to, um, I haven't bothered her lately, but she's one of my mentors also, but Joy Harjo. Mm. Um, she used to help me with dream work. Uh, I met her back in 2016 at the Bemidji Northwoods Writers Conference. And uh, she's a very generous kind person and i buy beadwork from her daughter uh uh rainy um i post that a lot uh her work mm -hmm. she's very very talented but um joy harjo i just finished american sunrise and i actually uh, uh handed it out across the bar last night to to a friend um to read next but joy's work is amazing and her new book, you know, American Sunrise, she's, it's really heavy hitting. And I appreciate that. But then Maya Angelou, um, Natalie Diaz, Jericho Brown, um, Sharon Olds. I love Sharon Olds and I have almost every book she has written. Um, mm. Her command of language is beautiful. Um, and her one of my favorite books is Stag's Leap. Huh. Well, that's it's good you're suggesting this because I think some of our listeners might look up some of these uh, authors if they haven't already. So Heidi, how about you? Your favorite poets, dead or alive? Well, I already mentioned Mary Oliver and Wendell mm -hmm. Berry. I really enjoyed their work. Mm -hmm. um, I also 
like the work of Camille Dungy, and uh, she's the current poetry editor of Orion Magazine. And then Maggie Smith, uh, not the actress, the poet. Um, and I also really appreciate Jura Hydro's work. Um, and my editor actually is also a poet. Her name is Leslie Browning. She has an, a book coming out soon called Drive Through the Night, which is a, a really lovely work as well. Well, uh, promotion's a big part of um, your life, or will be when when books come out. Um, and you, on April twenty seventh, there will be that Poets of Place launch party that um, Rosie had mentioned. I uh, want to know what's next for both of you after that, or what do you see in your future, um, Heidi? Let's start with you. What do you see next or coming up for you? Uh, well, I'll be releasing my book called It's called Slouching Toward Radiance. Um, so there will be a, a launch party for that too, just the week after the Poets of Place. Uh, launch party for the chat book so mm -hmm. the, it'll be at art reach st croix in stillwater on the 5th of may mm -hmm. so that's the next big thing and then way further in the future and i'll not way further but in january i have another book coming out that's nonfiction. it's more about nature connection um, so i'm looking forward to finishing that project as well so where where can uh, folks purchase your books they can get them at uh, valley bookseller has them and then uh, current, so it comes out technically on Tuesday next week. Okay. Um, but the staple in Osceola has some early copies too, and they can also get them in Lindstrom at Gladia Gallery and most bookstores and on online retailers as well. Sure. I mean, you just uh, um, you can just look up Heidi Barr B A R R too, and it will list all yep. all of Heidi's books. Rosie, you have an album release coming up the end of June. Tell us about that. Uh, yes, I have um, uh, out. Album release date June 30th at the Brookside Bar and Grill. Um, I'm really excited because, you know, along with the, this Poet of Place, I'm also a Write Like Us mentor for five Minnesota colleges where I am, um, I have the opportunity to mentor eight uh, BIPOC creative writing students. Um, one of the my fellow mentors is Michael Kleber Diggs, an incredible poet who's currently up for a Minnesota Book Award. He has already agreed to come out here to Marine and uh, you know open for for my um, album release event. He and I'm I'm getting some other. Um, it'll be a very diverse. A group of poets. Some of my students are are gonna read that day. Um, I just want to highlight uh, these other all the programs that that I'm a part of, along with um, this poet uh, uh, place. The four poets that are that are uh, doing this with me and and uh, representing the valley. I've invited them to come as well. Um, I'm still waiting on. I'll, I'll have a uh, be making that announcement when I know for sure who's going to be um, reading. But that's a Thursday night at uh, at the Brookside out on the patio. Oh, that'll be great. In fact, um, River Radio kind of keep in touch um, if you have something coming up because we like to get and you too, Heidi, get something on the news if you are reading your work somewhere. Um, let us know. But hey, I've enjoyed talking with both of you this morning. Sorry, Heidi, things weren't working out there, but I think we got got to know you a little bit better. So appreciate you being on River Radio today, both of you. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Heidi Barr from Lindstrom and Rosie Peters of Marine, two of five poets selected for this year's ArtReach St. Croix's Poets of Place, Advocates and Ambassadors for Poetry and Creativity in the Lower St. Croix Valley. Jim? Yeah, <clears throat> thanks again, Gail. And yes, uh, very much looking forward to the Joy Harjo event uh, on April 18th. That'll be a virtual event, and you can get that info on that big read link we have on our show page. And of course, the event that they have coming up um, on the 27th up in St. Croix Falls at the National Park Service office. Here's the results of our poll about volunteer time. Uh, good to see that people are, are pretty up on this. 45% do up to 10 hours a month. 27% do 10 to 20. 18% do 20 to 40 hours a month. And 5% do more than 40 hours a month. That's great. Uh, just a sliver who don't spend any time volunteering, and I'm sure there'd be a good reason if they don't. Uh, but if you're looking to do more, remember that Marine Volunteer Fair on Monday from 4 to 7 up at the Village Hall. Uh, let me give you a quick preview of our next show. Uh, it's two weeks from today, Saturday, April 23rd, 9 a.m., and our feature guest is going to be Richard Leiter. He's our uh, friend and author of 11 books, his latest being, Who Do You Want to Be When You Grow Old? The Path to Purposeful Aging. Richard says, everyone's getting old, but not everyone is growing old. Be sure to join us for that program in two weeks on April 23rd. I want to be um, on River Radio when <laughs> That's I grow old. When you grow old. Well, yeah. it's working wanna, so far. <laughs> I want to be a guest. I want you to interview me, Jim. That could happen. I think we that should could inter happen. Let's interview Matt. That would be a great interview. <laughs> okay, I want to say thanks again to our guest, Professor Nick Hayes from St. John's University in Collegeville, and Poets of Place, Rosie Peters and Heidi Barr. All of our shows are available as podcasts wherever you get your audio or at marinecommunitylibrary.org. We take you out with the suburbs. See you again in two weeks, and remember, you heard it right here on River Radio. Yeah.